Let's open our Bibles back to Isaiah chapter 9 and look at just two verses. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Two very well-known verses. The first well-known or known more than the second. And I hope that you will love both of them, both 6 and 7 of Isaiah chapter 9. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Amen. Amen and amen. God has graciously led us to Isaiah 9, where he gave one of the most glorious prophecies of Jesus Christ, Many have memorized the first verse. I ask you to never forget the second verse and to carry it along with verse 6 because the two of them together are the complete prophecy. We want to embrace the origin of Jesus, His rule, and His names. By the first verse of this precious passage, we note the present tense for the birth, the present tense for the giving of the Son, and everything else is future because this is the Son that became king. He was born a king by decree, by plan and by purpose. But he became king when he was set on the holy hill of Zion after his resurrection and ascension into heaven. We will rejoice in the kingdom of Jesus Christ and its glorious success by God setting it up. Let me read to you a special verse from Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44. Daniel chapter 2, 44, speaking of the kingdoms that Daniel saw in Nebuchadnezzar's image, in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Daniel 2.44, God raised up a mighty commander and leader for us. Those are the words chosen in Isaiah 55, which we will get to in a few months. A mighty commander is our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, and it will not be as long as you might want it to be because we have other things to do this morning. For unto us a child is born. His people, his elect church, Israel of the Old Testament and spiritual Israel of the New, needed a Savior. And so it's unto us. And those first opening words should be precious to us. And by the way, just as one more point that came across my mind at this moment, 
for those of you that are still trying to put Isaiah 9, 1 through 5 into place, I would like you to back up with the coordinating conjunctions that start verse 6, start verse 5, start verse 4, connecting back to what God did in verse 3 and moving forward with coordinating conjunctions of 4, 4, 4, and how it connects together. We needed a deliverer, and God sent one for us. We needed a deliverer from both natural and spiritual enemies, and Jesus Christ will save us. We needed a light and truth to save us from lies and darkness. And Jesus, the light of the world, is such a king, such a glorious prince and witness to light, to truth, burst forth on the scene of this world in 26 A.D. when he preached and was baptized, not in that order, but when he was baptized and he preached, that's when he was seen and known identified by John the Baptist as the Messiah of God. He was born. Notice what it says. Unto us a child is born. For God sent forth his son made of a woman. Made of a woman. He had a beginning like all of us. He partook of our nature as a child born. His mother Mary was a virgin. So when it tells us a child is born, she had not known a man until after she gave birth to the Lord Jesus according to Matthew 1.25. His birth was personal and purposeful for specified, named, written persons, us. We despise the paganism and Roman Catholic heresies of Christmas, but we do love his birth. He had a beginning, for he was a man. Yes, he was God, but he was a man, and his beginning is recorded in 5 B.C. in Bethlehem of Judea. The future king of the universe began his life as an infant born of a woman, like all men. He was the seed of the woman we just sang about. Rise! The conquering woman's seed? Rise! And he was born in 5 B.C., and he is our Lord and Savior. He was at once the promised seed of Abraham and prophesied son of David. Unto us a son is given, his incarnation. He was given by God. Through the womb of Mary, there wasn't a man participating. We didn't generate him. God gave him. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. God gave him to us. His origin and arrival were not by himself or for or by us. He was given by Almighty God. The Creator gave a gift to his chosen people. For God so loved the world of his elect that he gave his only begotten son is the only son that God has begotten that way. The creator gave a gift to his chosen people. The gift proves his great love for us. Jehovah gave this gift. We needed him and he would, he was sent and given to us to save us. What a son he was and is no one else would give any kind of a son for you in the way God gave his son as a gift. God commended his love toward us by giving his son to die for us while we were his enemies. Angels declared this transcendent gift in private and in public. And guess what? They want to know more about it. It blows their minds that God made one of our nature and gave us a son and gave us a savior 
and gave us a redeemer and did not do that for them. Their fallen comrades are, are reserved in chains in everlasting darkness for the judgment of the great day. And so 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12 tells the angels desire to look into these things. And Ephesians 3.10, a very obscure text, but Ephesians 3.10 says that God so arranged it that the principalities and powers in heavenly places would see his manifold wisdom in the salvation he designed for you and me. Amen. It's incredible. Unto us a son is given. He's ours. He was given to us. He was given for us. What we learn of him is ours. Let's learn everything we can about him. Let's delight in him. Let's serve him. Let's promote him. Let's speak of him. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. The son given, Jesus our Lord, was born by eternal decree to take the throne of power of the universe. He was born to be king. He, was, he fully earned it and deserved it, but he was born to it. His mother was told about his future as king before she gave birth, when the angel spoke to Mary. He was the son of a king three ways. He was the son of David legally by Joseph, his legal father. He was the son of David biologically by Mary, his biological mother. And he was the son of God, the king of nations and the king of all earth, all the earth and the universe. His office, his work was to govern to lead, to judge, to manage and rule God's kingdom. All angels and men in heaven, earth, or hell are under his authority. The government shall be upon his shoulder. He determines who goes to hell. He determines who goes to heaven. And he's the, he's the judge in the matter. He's glorious. All the government shall be upon his shoulder. Jesus was able to say after his resurrection from the dead and before his ascension, he told his apostles, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore. Based on that power, they were able to go and turn the Gentile world upside down. Thank you, almighty God and Lord Jesus Christ. Almighty God and the infinite Jehovah gave Jesus Christ all judgment. All things were committed to his hands. And we learned that thoroughly in the Gospel of John. And I hope you remember it. Shoulders are for large burdens. He'd bear up the responsibility of the universe and do it perfectly. His name shall be called. The personal name is Jesus, Joshua, Jehoshua of Nazareth. His personal name is Jesus of Nazareth. Identifying him by his work, Jehovah is salvation, and the city of origin, Nazareth. That's where he grew up. We know his chief titles are Lord, the sovereign ruler, and Christ, the anointed Messiah. I repeat these words at times for you because I never want you to be confused about them. Jesus of Nazareth is his personal name. It's no disrespect to refer to him as Jesus. It's no disrespect in one of the most powerful prayers in the Bible. In Acts chapter 4, to pray, Thy holy child Jesus. Paul wasn't ashamed to be called a leader of the sect of the Nazarenes because Jesus of Nazareth. He is Lord, a, so a title of his sovereign rule over the universe. And he is Christ which means the Messiah, 
promised in the Old Testament. We know he has over a hundred names and titles used or implied through the scriptures. And here we have a few. His name shall be called. These adjectives and names, some of which we don't find used of him as a name, but here they're called his name and he should be called these things. So for 2,700 years, believers have called him these names. We call him these names. Wonderful. Not just as an adjective, a name. Wonderful. And he is. If you make it an adjective, you've got to attach a noun to it. Which one are you going to pick? I say, let's just go with wonderful. I'm going to try in just a minute, but let's go with wonderful as his name. Because in everything he did, he was wonderful. Everything he did, everything he thought, everything he said, he was wonderful. And so we call him wonderful. His names are divinely inspired to be embraced by us and to be valued at the very highest level that we can give these words. The first one is wonderful. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful. We know that God is wonderful in counsel, because Isaiah 28 is going to teach us that in those three words. But there's a comma in our King James Bible. I need to ask you a question. Are commas inspired? They're very important. And there's a comma between wonderful and counselor, so the King James doesn't look like other Bible translations that wants to say, use wonderful as an adjective for counselor, and he's a wonderful counselor. He's wonderful in every measure. And he's a counselor. And of course he's a wonderful counselor because he's a wonderful everything. And he's wonderful in counsel because it says so in Isaiah 28 and verse 29. Wonderful. What does wonderful mean? Look at the two parts of the word. Full of wonder. What's a short definition of being full of wonder? Causing astonishment. Marvelous is Jesus our Lord, the Son that God gave us. He was wonderful in character and conduct. Wonderful in speech and prayer. Some of you love John 17. He was wonderful answering and asking, comforting and convicting, miracles and weeping. The shortest verse in John, Jesus wept. How wonderful. He was wonderful dealing with Jews and dogs. You say dogs. Yes, the woman of Canaan. Do you like the way he dealt with the woman of Canaan? Did she like the way he dealt with her? Oh, yes. She said, yea, Lord, but the dogs do get some crumbs from their master's table. (laughs) And what did he say about her faith? I haven't found faith like that in all of Israel. That's how wonderful. The the apostles wanted her out out of there. Jesus wanted her there, and he's, he's wonderful. Anybody that, anybody that would meet me would want me out of there. Jesus wants me there. That's all that matters to me. Mm-hmm. Threats and forgiveness. Oh, Caiaphas on, in his trial. What Jesus said to Caiaphas, and then he forgives them all that are crucifying him on the cross. He could talk to a thief and his mother on the cross, and comfort both. 
He was wonderful. His conception was wonderful. His birth, preaching and miracles, death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven, all of it's wonderful. He's a counselor. Do you ever have problems? Do you have needs? Do you have questions? Do you face dilemmas? He's a counselor, the counselor, the great counselor, the inspired counselor, the perfect counselor, the impeccable, immaculate counselor is Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord. A counselor is one that gives advice or counsel, but they are severely limited in wisdom. In Jesus Christ are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, according to Colossians chapter 2. He perfectly knows God's incredible will and taught it perfectly, astonishing hearers. He creatively confounded enemies and perfectly instructed his friends later. A counselor is another title for an attorney, a lawyer, an advocate, intercessor, or mediator. He is indeed counselor when it comes to being our lawyer. You need a lawyer. You have a lawyer. You have the Lord Jesus Christ. There's one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. He ever lives to make intercession. He's on retainer forever at God's expense for you. You try to get a good attorney on a retainer for you and see how much it costs you. Jesus is on retainer for us forever. He's guaranteed not to lose a single one assigned to him. He's called the mighty God. The mighty God. The Jehovah's Witnesses hate that definite article. And so they make it mighty God. But he's the mighty God. They hate, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so they make it, the Word was a God. But we believe just what it is here. Look at the attacks that have been made already on this little passage of Scripture. We rejoice in the providential preservation of Scripture to capitalize the definite article. Come on, brethren. Do you like your Bibles or not? Do you ever slow down enough to see that it's a capital the? Now, if some of you have a Bible that doesn't have a capital the, we'll take a collection to help you get one. I hope you all have it. Just, it's like the Lord is saying to the Russellites, hey boys, did you forget this? The is capitalized. The mighty God. You say, do you really slow down and enjoy the those of the... Of course. Amen. Of course. I want you to. to look at those those. The mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Are they capitalized? Yes. The mighty God. David, when he described our Jesus in his messianic love song of Psalm 45, called him most mighty. Paul, when he wrote about him, said, the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. The everlasting Father. He is not the Father as the one He called Father in the roles that they had with each other. They were distinct and separate that way. He is the Father, the Ancient of Days, by having the fullness of the Godhead. The Bible tells us, He is the Father of His children and declares it so. He shall see His seed. We are His generation. Isaiah 53, both of them. Behold, I am the children which God hath given me. So I know he's our brother. He's our everlasting father. He's our everything. Do you want a perfect father to look out for you, protect you, and help you? Look to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
As the God and ruler of Israel, he was from everlasting to everlasting, the everlasting Father. He's the Prince of Peace. He made glorious peace, not only with the thrice holy God, but with all enemies as well. His death made peace by covering sins so that we can boldly approach God. He's the Prince of Peace. He has also made peace by destroying the devil and his works. Our enemy, he's made peace by destroying him. Haggai chapter 2, that says the desire of all nations would come to that second temple that Zerubbabel built. And it says that this latter house will have greater glory than the former house. You've heard those words. And in this place, will he give peace? Because in that second temple, he rent the veil from top to bottom as the Prince of Peace and made peace for us to go right into the presence of God. He's the perfect fulfillment of Melchizedek, who in his name was King of Righteousness, but also he was King of Salem, which means King of Peace. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles to bring both together to make one church and body for himself. He promises everlasting peace from conflict. There will be no more war. There will be no more pain. There will be no more trouble. He can speak peace to the Sea of Galilee. He can speak peace to the Pacific Ocean. Or he can speak peace to your soul. He's the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government. His government is only going to grow. And it has grown in stages, in phases. He was decreed to be a king. He was born to be a king. He was then declared to be a king. He confessed he was a king to Pilate, and then he was crowned king when he got to heaven. And he still has an enemy to be put under his feet formally. Now, he's already abolished death. Don't get me wrong. Just think about all the scriptures. Death will be put under his feet. And then when death is finally, formally, and officially destroyed and annihilated from the new heaven and the new earth, yes, He'll be king of everything because God has said, sit thou at my right hand until I make all thine enemies thy footstool. Only God is accepted. He's king of the universe. His government just continues to increase. It began as a very small thing in the days of John, Jesus, and the apostles, and it grew to fill the whole earth as that mustard seed is described growing into a great bush or tree. In the Bible, no enemies like the Jews or Pilate could keep him from being crowned king. Psalm 2 is so wonderful in all 12 of its verses. It began small, but it filled the earth, reaching even to us here in America. It looked like a stone that hit Nebuchadnezzar's image in the feet, but then it just continued to grow. Do you know how small the Babylonian Empire was? Persian? I mean, if you just make it to the border of India, but you can't really get inside, that's not too far east. And if you can only make it to Egypt on the west, that's not very far. Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, Romans. Oh, Romans got to England. But what's the kingdom of Jesus Christ? Uh, Is it here in the Piedmont of the Carolinas? It's here in the Piedmont of the Carolinas. Is that a little farther? Does it fill the earth? Did I give you greetings from Malaysia? Is that outside the uh, Persian Empire? Beautiful. Thank you, Lord, of the increase of His government. Jesus Christ's rule over all things is never diminished, only increased. That is unlike any other thing we know, any other person, role, office, organization, institution, or nation that we know. It, 
they, they, they wax and wane. They increase, they decrease. He only increases. And we should say with John, I must decrease while I keep increasing him. He must increase. And we want the Lord Jesus Christ to increase. It's a spiritual kingdom. So don't, do not be like the blinded Jews to look for an earthly reign. Don't, 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 don't do that. Keep it a spiritual reign. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate, if my kingdom was of this world, you'd have a problem on your hands right now. My kingdom is not of this world. Of the increase of his government and peace. Since I've mentioned peace, Prince of Peace, let's pass over it. It deserves special treatment because he is high priest forever. He is a king and priest that's made us priests. Open up the way to God so that we can go boldly to God by his righteousness for us. Change creates fear, but there's no change in this reign. As the promise unfolds next, there shall be no end to the increase of his government and his peace. There shall be no end. His reign as king over the universe cannot be overthrown or come to an end. Not ever. This is the final kingdom you are in now by baptism, and it cannot change. Hebrews 12, 28 says it cannot change. And I know what, you're think what you should be asking me is, but what about the everlasting kingdom of Jesus Christ? Well, that's just a little change in location for a little while. That's just changing in location. Because we have come unto Mount Zion and the spirits of just men made perfect, we're already together. We're just going to move up there, back down here. Who knows what country I'm going to get? And I'm not a Mormon. Well, I'll be your servant. You rule the country. That's Bible terminology. There shall be no end. His royal kingdom endures to all generations, unlike others. Every other office and ruler has term limits, some short as a few years, not one of them is eternal. Daniel declared that Christ's kingdom is gloriously permanent over others. He will not tire, retire, or be replaced. Like Melchizedek, no father, no mother, no beginning of days, no end of days. He is king and priest forever. Upon the throne of David, I want you to know that his throne is called the throne of David. His, call, his throne is called the throne of God. It's the throne of Christ. It's Christ's throne, but it's called the throne of David because David was the greatest king the church had of the Old Testament. And so when we're in Isaiah, to appeal to David's throne, David didn't need to be Solomon. Solomon couldn't fight his way out of a wet paper bag, folks. I'm sorry. Do you know why David couldn't build the temple? Because David could fight his way out of a wet paper bag and had done most, spent most of his life destroying enemies. He pushed the empire to the Euphrates and to the Nile because he was a man of war and a bloody man for more reasons than one. But he's, it's called the throne of David right here. And Jesus is called David as we go from this book of Isaiah forward through the prophets of God. Jesus is called David sometimes. And the whole Bible calls him the son of David. And in the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, he is still the son of David, the greatest king of Israel as far as a military hero and a man that was after God's own heart, and a great leader that was taken from the sheepcoats to take care of the people of God. He's the commander of the Old Testament church that was all other kings were compared to. Jesus is the son of David upon the throne of David. I reminded my wife this... Oh, I reminded my wife uh, yesterday, I believe, 
of when I was 19 years old. And the last words of David came to me with such beauty in 2 Samuel 23, 1 through 5. These be the last words of David. And he describes the Lord Jesus Christ in two verses about a sunrise and grass springing out of the earth by rain. They're beautiful verses. 2 Samuel 23, 3 and 4. They're beautiful. Then he has to say this, Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. David knew he had a bunch of reprobates in his family. He knew that he hadn't been that kind of a king himself, but he knew God had made a covenant with him and it was established and sure forever. And it wasn't eternal life. It was a son on God's throne forever. Because it's talking about a ruler. Remember, context is our master. So it's just a... And so we should expect it right here. The kingdom of David, the throne of David, and upon his kingdom. David's kingdom was glorious in Israel's history for its victories, its prosperity, its joy. David's kingdom is the best view of Christ's kingdom in victory, prosperity, peace, and joy. That an Old Testament prophet could give Old Testament people, oh, oh, to go back, only for the old days, if we could be in David's kingdom. David had his mighty men, the Bible records. Does Jesus have any mighty men? Does Jesus have any mighty men around his pavilion? Just a few? How about the innumerable company of angels? Because they are all under him. And he is far above all of them. And they're all subject to him. To order it and to establish it. Oh, before I leave kingdom, just remember, in Acts 15, at the great council of Jerusalem, when we had a whole bunch of inspired apostles together, and elders of that church, and Paul's there, and Peter's there, and they're all there. Remember what they told us? That we Gentiles being converted to the gospel of Jesus Christ and loving this Son of God are rebuilding again the tabernacle of David. I love being part of the kingdom of David, except we have a whole lot better David on the throne and wielding the sword, the two-edged sword that comes out of his mouth. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. To order it and to establish it, a ruler must actually implement and execute his authority and his laws to truly reign. If he cannot legislate his laws and enforce them, then he is merely a puppet king. If he cannot destroy all enemies of every kind, his reign is tenuous and or temporal. Consider the Jews who said he could not reign over them. What did he say about them? It's Luke chapter 19. Do you want to know what he said? Bring those men that said they would not have me to reign over them and slay them before me. Yeah, that's my king. That's my king. You want to say to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, I will not have this man to reign over me? Oh, that is the wrong thing to say. That's like saying even God couldn't sink the Titanic on its maiden voyage. To order it and to establish it. Thank you, Lord. With judgment and with justice. His authority, Jesus Christ's rule, are in perfect judgment and justice, righteousness and equity. He has no errors of ignorance or corruption by malice, for he loves right. And for those of you that read Hebrews 1 last night, because you loved righteousness and hated iniquity, God hath anointed thee 
and he has a scepter of righteousness. His reign is perfect. Everywhere we read, every day, if we let ourselves go and read what's going on in the world or going on in our nation, we see justice and we see judgment and we see righteousness compromised, corrupted. Never with this king. Never. With judgment and with justice. That is righteousness and equity. Perfect fairness as defined by God. Every government and ruler upon earth has both faults, faults of ignorance and faults of corruption to varying degrees because we're all sinners. They're all sinners. Eternal security of your elect soul is as certain as the final destruction of all his enemies. From henceforth, even forever. It's going to be a kingdom of judgment, a kingdom of justice. Jesus Christ is going to be on the throne of David to order it and to establish it from henceforth, forever, from, and it was in stages, born, born, raised from the dead. Though they found no fault in him, they killed him, but God raised him from the dead. And do you know what follows that statement in Acts chapter 13? Quote after quote, like these. But God promised us the sure mercies of David. What are the sure mercies of David? God's mercy to David that his son would sit forever on his throne. And it's called the sure mercies of David because it's from henceforth, even forever. The, it'll continue to increase. Nothing can stop it. No one can even question it. It's the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not waiting for some millennial kingdom. There is nothing like that taught in the Bible. We are not Zionists waiting for some restoration of some carnal earthly kingdom on that strip of sand in the Middle East. We're waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ to come from heaven with his mighty men called mighty angels in flaming fire to take vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every promise of God is sure to you forever. He cannot lie. Jesus is called the faithful witness. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Amen. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. You look at nine, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, and you look down through all those phrases as we have just done lightly and superficially, and we get to the end, and it says, the zeal. The intense commitment and energy of Jehovah God guarantees this, that it's going to happen. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The Lord Jehovah, the great I am that I am, the creator and covenant maker who sent his son to us, for us, born of a virgin, would rule like David forever. Amen. We can see Jesus' zeal cleansing the temple but this is God, his Father's zeal. Jesus is Lord of Sabaoth, Lord of hosts, commander and king of the angel armies. Jehovah's own zeal. Think about it. Jehovah God's intense commitment and intense energy and seriousness to bring about this event. Neither the devil nor your heart can alter his glorious intentions. He will not lose a single one. Would you please turn to Isaiah 54? Isaiah 54, I need to talk to you about a few things in the universe so that you can understand the zeal of the Lord of hosts a little bit better. There were some in our body that were out west in Colorado this past week, 
and saw some double rainbows, both ends touching the earth. Just about every day they were there. And I asked a poor lass what a rainbow means. Your nan is is a lass as well. What does a rainbow mean and what should it mean when you see a rainbow? That the Lord's not going to drown the earth with a flood. Really? Okay, that's good. But I believe in progressive revelation. Can I do better than that by coming out of the book of Genesis and coming forward? Let's come to Isaiah 54 and we want verse 9. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, that's 55. 54. For this is as the waters of Noah unto me. For as I have sworn the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be wroth with thee, nor rebuke thee. When you see a rainbow, it's the same thing to God, that he's not going to drown the earth. It's that he's not going to be wroth with us anymore. His anger's going to be, oh, turned away, and his hand's not going to be stretched out still. And how important is the sign he gave us? A rainbow. So let's be glad that we're not going to drown in a worldwide flood. And let's thank God that his anger is turned away and he's not wroth with us. For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed. But my kindness shall not depart from thee, neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord that hath mercy on thee. So... When you look at rainbows and you look at mountains and you, don't, you, you seldom have a thought that that mountain's going to move, when you think about a mountain not moving and when you think about hills, though if the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, my kindness shall not depart. Jesus said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. The government of his kingdom and his peace is by the zeal of the Lord of hosts. Look at Jeremiah 33. Jeremiah 33. Isaiah 59 had three things mentioned. Rainbows, mountains, and hills. Now we come to Jeremiah 33. At verse 20, Thus saith the Lord, If ye can break my covenant of the day, and my covenant of the night, and that there should not be day and night in their season. Then may also my covenant be broken with David my servant, that he should not have a son to reign upon his throne, and with the Levites the priests my ministers. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, neither the sand of the sea measured, so will I multiply the seed of David my servant, and the Levites that minister unto me. So we have days, nights, stars, and sand. If you can keep tomorrow from happening, then you might be able to break God's covenant of grace to save us. If you can keep tonight from happening, then maybe you can break the covenant of grace to save each of us. That's in verse 20. Verse 22, can you count the stars? Can you count the sand and measure it of the sea? Since you can't, that's how many. That's how many sons of David and priests and Levites there are because Jesus has made us all kings and priests. Oh, 
Look at this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. Every secure and solid thing that you know in the universe, the Lord uses it as, as an example to prove you can't stop it. Right. Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31. I love being your simple little pastor. I get excited about simple little things. <laughs> I, I couldn't wait to get here to the, for this. You thought I was excited with Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 5 and 8 through 21? Right here, look at this. Jeremiah 31, verse 35. Thus saith the Lord, which giveth the sun for a light by day, and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, which divideth the sea when the waves thereof roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, saith the Lord, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. Is that national Israel or is that spiritual Israel? You better know it's spiritual elect Israel. Thus saith the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, saith the Lord. Have you done some things that you wish you could get back? It doesn't matter because he sent one to take care of all that. And so we have in this last passage of Scripture, sun, moon, sea, heaven, earth, to prove his zeal in performing our salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. What does the sun mean to you? How does your love, joy, and service compare to the apostles of the martyrs? Do you show that you have eternal life by having great joy in the Lord Jesus Christ? And is he the most precious thing in your life? Those are the two questions we began with, and they are how we ought to end. Is Jesus Christ the joy of your life, your greatest source of enjoyment, and is he the most precious thing in your life and person in your life? He deserves to be both. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen.